There is a truly harrowing scene in the novel An American Dream by the Pulitzer Prize-winning writer Norman Mailer with the very darkest of human evil inextricably bound to the transcendent. It really isn't fair to isolate the heavenly strand, but critics like Harold Bloom have done so, leaving us with the character Rojak as he's attacking and disposing of his wife, saying, I had the mental image I was pushing against an enormous door which would give inch by inch to the effort. But I had had a view of what was on the other side of the door, and heaven was there, some quiver of jeweled cities shining in the glow of a tropical dusk. And crack, the door flew open and I was floating. I was as far into myself as I had ever been, and universes wheeled in a dream. We've singled out the seraphic strand solely because of the door, the image of the door. If we know anything about the work or life of Norman Mailer, we recognize that he was regularly pushing beyond boundaries and barriers, might we say, doors. And certainly the celestial and radiant were not always on the other side. Mailer is sometimes compared to the great American writer Herman Melville, and we're told Nathaniel Hawthorne was not the kind of deep diver Melville was. In fact, Melville leaves Hawthorne at the door to the forbidden and plunges into the blackness of darkness. Norman Mailer, too, explores the abyss, but the desperation of his attempt does not preclude a return. Ultimately, we're told for Mailer, the quintessential human activity is the quest. Pretty strong stuff from J. Michael Lennon in his essay titled Mailer's Cosmology. It's astonishing to realize that Dr. Lennon first entered into Mailer's world in 1972 when the writer was on a book tour in Illinois, and that Lennon went on to accompany Mailer through his life with plenty of laughs and certainly the unexpected. Through his last days to the very end, escorting Mailer to his final resting place and in some traditions the closing of one door and opening of another. Dr. Lennon is Emeritus Professor of English at Wilkes University in Wilkes-Barre and co-founder there of the Maslow Family Graduate Program in Creative Writing. He is Mailer's authorized biographer and his remarkable study, Norman Mailer, A Double Life, is critically acclaimed. What is so valuable for us here as listeners of WVIA is that Dr. Lennon has been a longtime friend of our radio station, and he stopped in over the years to share with us new collections of Mailer's writings or new books about Mailer and his life, always with new insights into who Mailer was and what he has to say to us today. Today, even today, January 31st, 2023, the 100th anniversary of his birth. So, as we welcome Dr. Lennon back to the art scene table, he has a great deal to share with us about all the publishing and producing tied to the centennial celebrations, not the least of which is a memoir-like book by Mike Lennon himself titled Mailer's Last Days, New and Selected Remembrances of a Life in Literature, issued by Etruscan Press, to coincide with the anniversary. Here's just a bit about Lennon's childhood home. The house had another memorable feature, 
a stand-up attic that ran the length and breadth of the house. At either end, there was a lunette, the half-moon window, which provided the only light. The attic was not wired for electricity. The house faced due south, so if I went up in the morning, a few rays of sunlight streamed in on the pine floorboards. Late in the day, the crepuscular light from the north side was softer and slanted differently, transforming the attic into an enchanted chamber, especially in the winter. To gain entrance, you had to undergo a trial. The dark closet. The door to the attic stairs was situated at the back of a long closet on the landing of the second floor. There was a light, but the switch, perversely, had been installed at the deep end, hidden behind clothing hanging on a long rack. On days when I was feeling brave, I would take five quick steps into the blackness and then, through the densely packed hanging clothes and mothball odors, furiously groped the switch. Sometimes I failed and ran out, but sometimes I'd find the switch, open the door, and slowly climb into the half-light, pausing when my line of sight was just above the attic floor to scan for whatever might be waiting. that from the first chapter of Mailer's Last Days, and we can't help but remember learning, as we've just done, about the importance for Mailer of questing and opening doors to dark places, something Dr. Lennon will tell us he might not have done, at least in this way, without his relationship to Norman Mailer. We begin our discussion where we always begin when Dr. Lennon is here with where we are at this time in the life and afterlife of Norman Mailer. We are right almost on top of it. January 31st is Mailer's 100th birthday. There's an awful lot going on. A number of books, uh, films, TV series, conferences, reprints of his work. It's stimulated a vast new interest in him. And my memoir was timed to come out just before before it, and so I'm very pleased. And I also have another book coming out that I did with John Buffalo Mailer, Mailer on Democracy, which we hope will be timely. And that's coming out from Sky Horse on Mailer's birthday. You mentioned film. What kinds of film projects are... Uh, there's a number of film projects. I think the one that has just been completed or production is done is a documentary film that Showtime is producing. And it's been in the works for a year, and it will be released sometime. They have to send it to a festival, like the Tribeca Festival first, and then they'll, they'll stream it. And I was involved with it. All the mailers, six or seven of the mailer kids were involved in it. A lot of his friends and family and literary critics, David Denby from The New Yorker was really one. David Denby and Susan Mailer are the stars of it. They're the tent poles. They're in it more than anybody. And Barbara Mailer is in it, 95. That's and his she sister. she was magnificent. They had close-ups of her and her blue eyes, and she said things with such eloquence and a simple, quiet assurance that, I mean, she was marvelous. I was in it. John Waters is in it. You know, a whole bunch of people from Provincetown and uh, Oliver Stone. It's quite a documentary. And I was supplying them, you know, photographs and magazine covers and speeches and stuff like that. And uh, I really enjoyed it. So that's one. 
There's also, um, I think it's the name Mark Gordon, who was involved with, I think, the, the Law & Order stuff on TV. He's making a feature-length film on Harlot's Ghost, focusing on the Bay of Pigs. That's in the works. There's another one about Jack Abbott and Norman Mailer. That's in the works. Remind people that was the prisoner who... Jack Abbott was the prisoner that Mailer and several other people wrote letters for, attesting to his literary abilities, and he got out and within a month had stabbed someone to death and uh, was caught and uh, died in prison. And it was one of the great heartbreaking events of Mailer's life. And then James Gray, the director of the new film uh, Armageddon Now, and also Ad Astra, and he's made a lot of movies. He is taken on to make a TV series based on my biography. I mean, it, it isn't it hasn't happened yet, but he wants to do it, and he is uh, in talking to John Buffalo Mailer, who has written a, what they call a Bible. It's a series of scripts and character sketches and vi- visuals that you use to write scripts. And so they're looking at it now. There's nothing, you know, no contracts or anything like that, but he's very interested in it. And so, um, you know, we'll, we'll see. And, of course, the question is, everybody isn't Norman Mailer at 100, but if Norman Mailer didn't mean anything to us today, the anniversary could come and go and people yeah. might let it pass. But why, why is he resonating now with us at his 100th? Well, I think he's resonating uh, because he was really one of the last great public intellectuals, and he was very deeply concerned with the state of American democracy. He was very fearful about it, and he believed that democracy is a grace. It's a flower. It has to be nurtured. It, it, does not, it is not a natural state of affairs. It is something that has been created by, by human beings. Mailer always said, you know, fascism is, is a much more natural state for people. He said, it's just like being a child. You're told what to do. This is right. This is wrong. This is black. This is white. And you don't have to think, right? You know who the enemy is, and you know who the good guys are, and that's it. And so it's a very simple thing to do. It's very seductive in, in that way. But democracy, you know, requires debate, and it's a messy process. You know, it's like making sausage, the old metaphor. And so I don't know how many people have said to me, God, I wish Mailer was alive to write about Donald Trump. I wish he was there. And I think, you know, if Mailer was alive, he could have roasted him to a turn. Uh, he, he knew Trump, but he knew him as a celebrity in New York. I mean, they were not close friends or anything like that. They knew each other. And I, I think the notion of the celebrity as president of the United States was, of course, something Mailer wrote about going back to Jack Kennedy and Ronald Reagan. And Bill Clinton, you know, uh, he always saw that Americans would love to see a movie star in the White House or somebody who looked like a movie star, like like Jack Kennedy and, and Jackie Kennedy. And he felt that Americans were susceptible for that and it wasn't a bad thing overall. And, you know, Trump just happens to be somebody from a grade B movie that, that went to the White House. Mike, you mentioned that your memoir is timed to coincide with the 100th anniversary. And it was intriguing to me about always, as we would come to this table together to talk about the next Mailer book or the next project or something that was new in the world of writing about Mailer. And I was always full of wonder and respect for the fact that you could manage the various roles, friend that you became to be, literary executor, authorized biographer, editor, 
I was a you know flunky, <laughs> carried suitcases. And, uh, I had a lot of roles. But because you're so you're so keen, you could manage them so that they did not affect the integrity of whatever project you were working on. Well, that's very kind of you to say that. Uh, I did my memoir, Mailer's Last Days, was an attempt to really understand my relationship with Mailer. And I could only understand my relationship with Mailer in the various roles that I was a sky was his bibliographer, his archivist, all and all the things you said. I could only understand my relationship to Mailer by understanding my role to my own father. And that was the impetus for the book. And that's the that's the theme of the book. It's the armature of the book. Everything is wrapped around that in one way or another. I mean, there's this 30, 31, 32 pieces in the book, all freestanding pieces. But uh, except for the, the prologue at the beginning, all the other pieces are freestanding. And several of them, I think half the book are memoir narratives and half of it are literary essays and book reviews about people who had a connection to Mailer. So there's a lot of James Jones in there. There's a lot of Gore Vidal. There's a lot of Joan Didion. Uh, there's a lot of Mary McCarthy. There's a lot of Muhammad Ali, uh, Robert Stone. Uh, all of these figures had some connection to Norman Mailer. And, and in, in a lot of the cases, I got to know them through Mailer. Uh, I got to know, not know, I got to meet Joan Didion you know, m- more than once. And I got to work with her at Mailer's uh, memorial service at Carnegie Hall. I got to meet Muhammad Ali more than once, too. And, you know, he filled the room up. Uh, he, was, he was something. And I got to meet Gore Vidal more than the others. Uh, I spent time with Gore Vidal on several occasions and got to know him. So I was able to write about them with some insight Uh, about their relationship to Mailer, and about them as writers and people. I was fascinated by all of them. I wrote about a number of other people that really had no connection, and so it was pretty easy to draw the line and say, well, all right, these 10 people, uh, no, but these 10, yes, they fit in. And so the attempt is to write a braided narrative so that just like any kind of a braid, they intersect more than once. They intersect once, and then they intersect again and again. And so... All the pieces in the book, in one way or another, are related to me and to Mailer and my friendship with Mailer. And behind all that is the kind of complicated relationship I had with my own dad, who was an alcoholic and died at a fairly early age of 58 uh, of alcoholism. And how after he died was just, he died about the time that I really got to know Mailer. And over the years, Mailer was you know a friend and then he was an advisor and then he was sort of avuncular and then I became you know in in a way I became kind of a son to him at least in my mind and I think he understood that uh, we, we never really we only talked about it once and I tell the story in the book uh, but not not often and it was something we didn't want to talk about it we were, our relationship was fine and so we were we were close enough that you know, I could call him up any day. I could go over to his house any day. Uh, I went on the road with him. I edited his books. You know, I carried his suitcases. Uh, I went upstairs and got his false teeth when he left them up there. You know, like things like that. I was the bartender there for parties because I was a bartender. I So I used to stand behind the bar and pour drinks. Uh, so I did a lot of things. And um, it was fine with me because 
it allowed me to not only get closer to him so I could write his biography, but it allowed me to reflect on a relationship with an older man, to have a relationship with an older man after my, my father died. I turned the page, and there's your father. And for a second, you say, no, that's Mike. Yeah, oh, you can see it. Yeah, you can see that my dad, yeah, he was a joker. He was a character. And that's my mother giving a kind of a, pretending to give you a, a hard look. But yeah, that, that, was, that was actually at my wedding, at that picture. What you tell us about him is that he was smart as a whip, that he was so well-read, and you would always try to come to terms with the fact that as smart and as well-informed and reading the works and, and sharing them and playing the piano and all of those things, why didn't they go to college? And that's something that you finally revealed to us. You're coming to understand that. What role did writing this and knowing Mailer and all of those things, would you have worked all those things through and come to understand your father if you hadn't had a chance to play off your relationship with Mailer? Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, and, and I had never put it in words before. I had never, people kept saying, well, what, you know, when are you going to write about you and Mailer? And I, I never felt ready to do it. It took me a long time. Mailer's been dead for 15 years. And it took me, you know, I started thinking about writing it, oh, about four or five years ago. But in a very vague way, I had no idea how I was going to do it. And, and the memoir essays in here, uh, which have not ever been published before, uh, with a couple of exceptions, most of it is new, were all written in the last three or four years. So it was then that I finally was able to open that closet door and go in there and, and rummage around in my past and talk to my sisters and my brother and cousins about my father and about my grandparents, my grandparents on both sides, and memories of myself as a young boy. So I go right back to my early years. But it isn't a thoroughgoing autobiography or anything like that. It's, it's a series of sketches and uh, memory narratives in which Mailer is not there. He's on the fringes uh, of all these. These are an attempt to understand how and why I really became his putative son. And I love it. You just mentioned you were finally able to open the door and go in there. And the closing image is a slamming of a door. Yes. And there's another one in, at the beginning. It's called the dark closet. And uh, opening the dark closet door is, is, is kind of my metaphor. I was afraid of that dark closet when I was a boy. And yeah, the, the slamming of the door, you know, I didn't, that's the end of the, of the final essay, and my father is there, and my grandfather's girlfriend, who I discovered by chance, and that door, I'd, I'd forgotten it, and only by writing it did it come back to me. When I was writing it, I'm writing about the whole story of how my father's father deserted the family at the height of the Depression. 1933, left them alone, and my father was deputized to go and meet him and say, we don't want you to come back anymore. You have broken the bond, and you are not welcome. You are not, we don't want you to darken our door again. And he never did. And so I had to write all about that. And as I was writing about it, I remember that I, I thought Mrs. Loud would be interested in the fact that we had discovered my grandfather's grave and how we found it and that my grandmother was collecting his social security check, but she didn't want to hear it. You say she took the key and <clears throat> shut the door in your face. 
One of the things that has always concerned me, I always have respected you as a writer and have read what you've written independently of writing about Mailer, but most of it Mailer-centric. But again, in reading this, I recognize what a really gifted writer you are. And I always worried that you don't get to do your own work, or maybe you do, but it doesn't get noticed because you're in the shadow of, in this case, Norman Mailer. Is that ever been something that you think about? Well, you know, I never, I, I never really wanted to write about myself. I resisted it. I didn't like the idea of writing about myself. I felt that it was uh, vain, uh, I suppose. It just troubled me that I, who cares, you know, about all one's thoughts and memories and childhood and things like that. Well, who, who's going to be interested in that? And one way I got out of it is that, you know, my cousins wanted to know about these stories. I was the oldest one, so I could remember more. And I thought, well, I'm going to write it for my sisters and, and my, my brother and my cousins. You know, some of them want to hear these stories about Grandmother Lennon and what it was like to raise six, six children with no husband in the, in the Depression. And there was, you know, it was a pretty lively tale. And so that was one way I got over my reticence. I'm not a particularly shy person at all, and I, you know, I'll tell stories and so on. But the idea of sitting down and writing a full-length memoir about myself was something that never, had never mm. occurred to me. What about fiction, though? Um, well, you know, I think I've taught fiction for so long for so many years, and I've, I'm a great reader of it, and I've written about it. I, I just don't think I have that fictional gene in me. I don't really want to write any fiction. I'd like to write about fiction, and I, I write and I teach creative nonfiction. So I'm interested in profiles. I'm interested in essays. I'm interested in memory narratives and memoir chapters. I'm interested in all those forms of nonfiction that are out there. I mean, Nonfiction, you know, it's um, it's everything that fiction is not. We say nonfiction. What a way to define it. But in a way, it's kind of accurate and it's good. You know, we write all these various things and what do we, we call them pieces. You know, I wrote a piece. Well, what, what, you know, and then you have to describe it because it can go in a million different directions. I wrote a piece about this. Well, what was it? Well, it was a, you know, and it could be anything. Whereas in fiction, you know, you write in very genres, you know, you, you write specific kinds of, it's literary fiction or it's science fiction or it's romance or bromance or whatever. And there are categories in bookstores, but nonfiction is just kind of an undifferentiated bunch of, of prose about almost anything. And that's what I like about it. You, you just come right out and say it, and it grabbed my attention, the fact that you came to see yourself in a way as a character in or a part of Norman Mailer's story, which is his life, and also that he had a way of navigating and negotiating all the various relationships in his life and that you were coming to see how he did that. By the same token, are you a character in your wife's life? Yes. I mean, I think we're all characters. I, I think of it that way, that we are all characters in their narratives. And I became willy-nilly a, a, a player, you know, a secondary actor in, in Mailer's life. And I had never really explained what it was. Everybody always asked me, what was he really like? What was he really like? You know, and, and this is even after people have read my biography, they'll say, what is he really like? As if there's some, 
They want to know those those close con. They want the in- anecdotes about what he really said. They want to hear the table talk. And so I tried to put a lot of that in there so they would get to see interactions that I had with them, especially the, the longest piece in the book is called Mailer's Last Days. And I think it must be about 30 or 40 pages long. And it, it really is taken from a, a diary that I kept or a journal over the last three years of his life. So I was able to take selected pieces out of that, add a little comment to them before and after them, and put them all together and take him really from the time he had open heart surgery in 2005, a little bit before that surgery, to his death in late 2007. Uh, and then to the memorial service at Carnegie Hall, which was really sort of the closing of the book, the end of the chapter. I was involved in all of that. I was there all the time. I was there when he went into the hospital for the last time. I went with him and his wife and his son and went to the hospital with him. I was there. I did his last book with him. I was I was in charge at his funeral. I was the speaker at his funeral. I, I stood over his grave and put dirt on his coffin and orchestrated the whole thing. And then, you know, I was like the master of ceremonies at at his funeral. And then at Carnegie Hall, I I helped put that together. So I I kind of ushered him out of this life in a lot of ways. I mean, with his wife, Norris, with his children, of course. But, you know, it was an easy relationship. They were used to having me around. And so I was the spokesperson for the press. Uh, Larry Schiller set that up. He, He was very involved, too. A close friend of Mailer's who worked with him on the Executioner's Song, that book. Uh, Larry called him up and he said, Mike Lennon is Mailer's authorized biographer and you can call him up for information on this and that and that. So, you know, AP was calling me, the New York Times, and everybody was calling me, asking me questions about this and that, about Mailer's, you know, where he's going to be buried and where the funeral service is, when's the memorial, all that kind of stuff. So all of that, I think, the last days of a great writer are always going to be of interest. And that's what I wanted to be another big part of this book. And because you were in a son-like role, but you weren't actually a son, you weren't John Buffalo Mailer, you had a certain, what, did it give you a certain distance that you could do all those things, whereas it would have been fraught, maybe, if one of the children or all of the children or a couple of the children tried to do all of that. He obviously had respect for you. Uh, Yeah, I think he did. It, it was helpful because I was, a, I was a link to the publishing world, to the literary world, to the academic world. And so I could do various things. And I was, I was the one who was, I was editing his letters for years and years and years. So that everybody knew I was doing that. I was one of the founding members of the Norman Mailer Society. And he, he actually came and spoke at the society at the end of his life. A lot of the family members came to the society. They're on the board of the society. They speak. Susan is. John is. Michael is. And so we all knew each other from that. Michael Mailer taught with me at Wilkes. John Buffalo and I made documentaries together. Susan and I co-edited his journals. I've worked with all of his kids. I've been in readings with, with all of his kids in Provincetown reading his works. So I was always kind of around, you know, uh, at the house. I was there. And I was working on one project or another with Mailer. And uh, I, was, I was there in town when they weren't. They, they didn't live in Provincetown. I actually moved there. Donna and I moved there, and we lived there for 14 years. And that's why I moved there. So we lived down the street from him. He wrote his last novel about Hitler 
called A Castle in the Forest, he wrote the first 150 pages at our condo. He needed to get away from the phone in the office at home, and so he'd come down every day. He had a big handful of pencils and a, a ream of white paper and an eraser, and he just sat down. He wrote, you know, freehand in, in pencil. And that would be December 1999, and January 2000 is where he wrote the first 150 pages of the novel at this little table. So, you know, I became kind of a, a butler, a, you know, an usher, a friend, a, a flunky, a, a pal, a poker player with him. All, all of those things. And along the way, he said a lot of interesting things. And so I was being Boswellian in trying to write them down. I'd go and spend time with him almost every day during his last three or four or five years. And then I'd go home and write down what he said. You know, anything interesting might be just a couple of sentences. I wasn't trying for verbatim, but I'd, ca- I'd capture some verbatim things. Donna would help me. I'd say, now, what did he say about this? And I would say, oh, yeah, yeah. And I'd write it down. And so I I knew it was important to record it. I knew it was important to record it. So I did. Because he was important, as you said at the start. He was important, right? He was an important figure in American life. And I was very happy to be his Boswell. I mean, Boswell has big shoes. And so I'm not saying uh, (laughs) that I was as sophisticated in copying down everything he said as Boswell was with Johnson. But he was a model. So tell us now, then, the book on democracy. It's called A Mysterious Country, Norman Mailer on the Fragility and Grace of Democracy. 80 excerpts from Mailer's work over 60 years on the question of democracy, fears of fascism, uh, the American character, what do we do? It's a series of kind of prophetic warnings that this country could fall into exactly what it has fallen into, a polarized nation. And that's when, of course, a polarized nation is when fascism creeps in. Did he have a sense about not just warning? Was he thinking, as you say, what can be done about it? Absolutely. Absolutely. He was very much thinking about what had to be done. He was reaching out across the divide, the chasm between the left and the right was essential. And so there are a number of pieces in there, Mailer and Buckley, and their their friendship. Mailer and Pat Buchanan. Mailer and Clint Eastwood, all the right-wing people that Mailer knew and was friendly with, and it was always looking for common ground. A lot of the pieces in the book have only been published in magazines or interviews. Like he did a long, long interview with, with Pat Buchanan. Long, must, must be 25,000 words, and it was in Esquire, and it's never been reprinted. And they go into it because Buchanan was opposed to big corporations. On the other hand, he was against immigrants and what what have you. He was an American firster, but he was interested about the working man and fair salaries and uh, that corporations had too much power. So that was the common ground. And Buchanan's running for president. This is 1996. He said, you know, maybe, Pat, have you ever thought about maybe Jesse Jackson as a running mate? And Buchanan went, oh, oh, Norman, you're really not, you know, I mean. And he said, oh, no, he said, I don't think so. Uh, he said, you know, I mean, uh, Jesse and I talk, but, you know, I don't think much is going to come of it. That's Norman. Though, That's Norman. It? Norman trying to do it. So he has a number of things, but reaching out, listening, caring, speaking out, speaking out. No violence, but speaking out any way you can or trying to open a dialogue all the time and warnings, the warnings about fascism. And writing then, literature, fiction, nonfiction, does that have a role to play? Absolutely. In the book, we have passages from three of his novels, from a dozen of his letters, from half a dozen of his nonfiction works, 
in which he looks back to the example of what happened to Germany in the 1930s, which, of course, his parents were completely aware of, being European Jews. And it will be out on January 31st. There's another book called Mailer at 100 by Robert Begiebing, who is a member of the Mailer Society and a professor, and uh, my generation, also knew Mailer. And his book is a series of chapters, I believe there are seven, Mailer and Joan Didion, Mailer and Whitman, Mailer and Hemingway, Mailer and Kate Millett, Mailer and Jung, separate chapters on all of those people, uh, some of them in the form of a dialogue, Mailer and Hemingway talking, and he uses their real words, you know, and the same with Whitman, which is a really a tour de force. It's a wonderful book, and it has just been published by LSU Press. So that's one of many books. David Denby is writing a book about Mailer and four other New York Jews, all born after World War I and became famous after World War II. Mailer, Pauline Kael, Betty Friedan, Leonard Bernstein, and Mel Brooks, who's still alive. They all were born in New York, all lived in New York, all died in New York, or, you know, are buried there. there. They lived their lives in New York. And uh, it's called Fearless, Five New York Jews. That's coming out uh, in 2024. So Denby is uh, a great interpreter of Mailer's stature. He's written about Mailer a number of times. He knew Mailer. He's a real fine writer, great movie critic, of course, for The New Yorker for years. And he's just published an essay in The Naked and the Dead in, uh, in The New Yorker. So that's just one of the books. There's, there's a number of other books that are coming out for the centenary. You're trying to keep yeah. up with it all, yeah. huh? Yeah, I'm trying to. Yeah, I, I keep a list, a running list uh, of all the different books and, and movies and films and things that are coming out and share them with the world. Many of our listeners may not realize the connection through you of Mailer to Wilkes University. Right. Uh, Norman Mailer came to uh, Wilkes four times, and the last time was in 2005. The second time he came, uh, he received an honorary degree, and actually his speech at Wilkes will be in the new book on democracy because he talked about democracy at that speech. And that was in 1995 when he got his degree, 95. Uh, but he came in 2005, and uh, we had a big literary festival, and he was the keynote speaker, and that was the kickoff event for the creative writing program, the Maslow Graduate Creative Writing Program at Wilkes. He was the chair of the advisory board until his death, and then his wife replaced him, and a scholarship in her name was established by him that is given to an outstanding graduate of the program. Marlon James was the first recipient of the first Norris Church Mailer Award. So he, um, he had a lot of connections. He was the one that, that suggested, we said you had to have a bachelor's degree to get into this MFA program, and he said, why? He said, if you're a good writer, you shouldn't need a degree. And we found out that the state of Pennsylvania does not require a bachelor's degree as a prerequisite to enroll in a graduate program. You don't have to have it if you're a good writer. So we have had a number of really fine writers who have come in the program. Well, they've had a year of college and they dropped out or, you know, they never finished or they never went, but they were good writers. They were, they were readers and writers and they, they uh, deserved a chance. And that was Norman's doing. So he's, he cast a shadow at Wilkes University. And his dining room table is there. And his dining room table is there. That's right. 
along with a complete reproduction of his study from Provincetown. All his chair, his desk, his books, his lamp, his pencils, his erasers, all of his paraphernalia are all on this big, big, huge wooden desk with his reading lamp and all of his thesauruses and dictionaries. Of many, He had many of them. It's all been reproduced at the Farley Library at Wilkes University. And, the, and all the students go through and get a tour of that and look at all the Mela manuscripts that are there. I gave them all the ones I had. And so they, they look at it. It's quite a collection. All of his library is there. 5,000 books. So Wilkes is the, the second most important place for the study of Norman Mailer, the second most important archive after the, after the one at University of Texas where his papers are deposited. Thanks to you. J. Michael Lennon, Emeritus Professor of English at Wilkes University in Wilkes-Barre, and co-founder there of the Maslow Family Graduate Program in Creative Writing. He is Norman Mailer's authorized biographer, and his remarkable study, Norman Mailer, A Double Life, is critically acclaimed. He's the archivist, he's the literary executor, editor, he's an educator, and today, January 31st, 2023, happens to be the 100th anniversary of the birth of Norman Mailer. Dr. Lennon records Mailer's birth in the biography in this way. In the early evening of January 30th, 1923, Fan felt labor pains and was admitted to Monmouth Memorial Hospital. Dr. Slocum, the Snyder family physician, was summoned. A son was born at 7.04 a.m. on January 31st, after Fan had been in labor for 12 hours. It was a difficult breech birth. The baby's Hebrew name, Nachum Melech, came from his grandmother, Mailer's brother, Nachum Melech Shapiro, who arrived in the United States in 1900. Melech means king in Hebrew, but his birth certificate says Norman Kingsley Mailer. Dr. Lennon's memoir-like book of essays, Mailer's Last Days, New and Selected Remembrances of a Life in Literature, has been issued by Etruscan Press to coincide with the centennial. And for more information about Mailer's Last Days, etruscanpress.org, etruscanpress.org. And Dr. Lennon just told us about the book I hold in my hand, A Mysterious Country, The Grace and Fragility of American Democracy. Norman Mailer, of course, his writings, and the writings have been edited by J. Michael Lennon and John Buffalo Mailer, a son of Norman Mailer. And the publisher states the book is published on the centenary of Norman Mailer's birth, an urgent call to preserve our democracy thoughts of Norman Mailer in his life about democracy. For more information, you can find all that you need on Dr. Lennon's website, jmichaellennon.com, jmichaellennon, L-E-N-N-O-N, dot com.